welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Well, welcome back, one and all, to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Aris. I am joined, as usual, by Dr. Joe Boot, and it's my privilege to have Dr. Andrew Sandlin with us as well. Andrew is a uh, fellow of the Ezra Institute. Regular listeners will be familiar with him. He's uh, he's on four or five times a year, uh, teaches at uh, several of our training programs, and has been a, uh, a great uh, friend and asset uh, to the ministry. Andrew's most recent book is called Virtuous Liberty, A Christian Defense of Classical Liberalism and the Free Society, Against Cultural Leftism and the New Right. So this, uh, it's an edited collection. Uh, Joe's got uh, got a chapter in there on uh, Christianity and racism. Uh, Andrew has uh, expertly edited these together, and uh, I would encourage you to go and uh, pick up a copy of that uh, that new book. Just another reminder that uh, coming up in just a few short weeks, Ezra Institute Canada has two Mission of God conferences happening. December 2nd in Windsor, Ontario, and December 9th in Calgary, Alberta. Uh, the theme for both of those is going to be redeeming sexuality, and you are uh, not going to want to miss it. Visit EzraInstitute.com, get your tickets, and we'll uh, look forward to seeing you there. So with that out of the way, gentlemen, it's uh, it's good to have both of you here today. We're going to be talking about what uh, what sounds at first like uh, like two... Uh, apparently contradictory philosophies, uh, but uh, when you start to start looking for just a second, you see that uh, these these two ideas and the two ideas I should mention before we get too much further. Uh, these are the uh, the philosophies of Marxism and of nationalism, and both both of these we've talked about uh, in several places and in several episodes. But one one of the things that uh, Andrew is here to talk about. Uh, as an expert in the philosophy of ideas, is why do we see two supposedly or apparently uh, contradictory philosophies uh, being uh, being trumpeted uh, and be, kind of going around together? Uh, Andrew, maybe that's uh, that's a place to start. If you wouldn't mind laying out a uh, a couple of lines about what these two ideologies. Uh, advance and support and why why are we tending to see them together these days that's a very good question ryan and it's not a new one uh what we're seeing played out in the united states and some other western countries today is very similar to what happened in germany in the late teens after world war ii all the way up to the nazi takeover in uh, 1932 and that is uh uh, a romantic nationalism on one side, a militaristic nationalism on one side, and an internationalist Marxism on the other side. Well, in Germany, as we all know, the nationalism won that battle. It lost in other mm-hmm. places. Um, the term nationalism can uh, mean all sorts of things to different people, and that's part of the problem. In fact, it seems uh, a greater problem with uh, nationalism than Marxism. It seems people have at least an intuitive understanding of what Marxism is, but use the term nationalism, and it can mean everything from patriotism to its most negative connotation, uh, Hitlerian, Mussolinian uh, fascism. 
Um, mm. I th- so if the way I use the term and the way I think it is generally understood uh, in its most generic sense is sort of the 19th century romantic uh, notion, uh, largely based in the thought, not entirely, but a thought of, of Hegel that the, the nation, the Volk, is a people and are sort of the soul uh, almost like uh, the, the nation itself is like a, a, a an abstract human being. Uh, it is the, the the collective, and it has um, and uh, an ideological character. It has an ethnic character. It has a cultural character, and uh, that this character is tied almost always to a particular land, a soil, um, a particular history, a development. Uh, now, by no means uh, is everything that I just said bad. Uh, God created uh, peoples, and uh, nations do have their own character and their own history, and that's undeniable. But the nationalism historically has wanted to say more than that. It's wanted to say, and this I think is perhaps the key distinctive, and that is that the individual's identity is largely, though not exclusively, found in, his, in the nation state, in the nation. Um, now, they would also, like Mussolini and Hitler, would say the family, too, is important. Your identity is in the family. But the family itself finds its meaning in the state, uh, in the nation. Mm. And there's almost always an ethnic uh, component to that. Um, there's a strong opposition, of course, to outside influences. They hate anything cosmopolitan. Uh, they, uh, they tend to be anti-Semitic. And if you think about it, one reason for that is that since AD 70, for the most part, the Jews have been largely a global people. They didn't have a land of their own, so they've gone everywhere. And of course, the Jews have been successful and therefore um, Jews and others um, have sort of polluted uh, our boundaries. So there's a strong, a very strong anti-immigration attitude among nationalists. Okay, so that's nationalism. We'll talk more about that. Uh, it's a good juxtaposition, Ryan, because Marxism is inherently internationalist. Uh, right. I mean, Marxism is basically secular globalism. Mm-hmm. Um, Marx himself, of course, the economic side of Marx, economic Marxism, is about the unity, the global unity of the proletariat. I mean, after the first um, nation itself fell to Marxism in 1917, there was immediate discussion <laughs> of how are we going to export the revolution? How are we going to export it to Germany? I talked about that earlier. Uh, how are we going to get it all over the world? Well, that didn't happen at all right away. And by the time World War II came around, uh, Stalin, uh, lo and behold, had to become a nationalist. Oh, the great national character of Russia being attacked by Germany. But philosophically, Marxism is globalist, uh, economically globalist. But I think in our own situation, it's more correct to speak of the Marxism of today in the West, which is cultural Marxism. And that is the idea of breaking down all borders, all barriers to the sexual revolution, uh, the equality of sexes, uh, equality of ideas, equality of religions. Uh, Marxism is basically the destruction of every hierarchy except uh, generally the hierarchy of the state and uh, the hierarchy of the the central idea of equality, which itself oddly becomes a sort of hierarchy. Everything must bow down to this notion of equality. Well, you can see then that you have this conflict of these two, the international Marxism versus uh, nationalism, and there there is a constant conflict. But it's interesting um, that, as some of you listeners will know, have heard the name of Herman Duyavert. One of his ideas is that in all non-Christian thought, there are always these antinomies, and there are always these ideas. If you have a particular idea, you'll have a corresponding 
idea that seems on the surface to be hostile to that idea. And yet those two ideas eventually at the root are apostate, autonomous apostate ideas. And that mm-hmm. is true in this case. I think what has happened in the West, I think it's very clear. I think Dr. Boone, I'm sure, has talked about this too. Is for the most part, over the last, certainly over the last 50 years in an accelerated way, we have seen the growth of cultural Marxism, new leftism, <clears throat> and in the West, very little nationalism. Well, people had had it up to here with that. And so there's been a response. The response hasn't been a distinctively Christian response, but often a, a nationalist response, which is we just going to make our borders tighter. And in some cases, that's correct. But there's no Christian basis uh, for most people, no Christian foundation for this. Uh, we've got to look to the nation state as central. Um, there are elements of this, uh, though he did a number of good things, elements of this in Donald Trump and a number of others in the present Republican Party in the United States. Uh, the important thing is the nation state. Um, well, I would suggest to you that there are good Christians devoted to that. At root, that form of nationalism is no more Christian than Marxism. Um, the Christian idea is that our unity is in Christ and in the culture that he establishes establishes based on his word, his revelation, not on an ethnicity or some other kind of kinship. This is true even of the family, which is the foundational creational institution. The family is not absolute. Uh, the Christian family is more important than the biological family. There shouldn't be a, ideally, shouldn't be a conflict between them, but Jesus Christ made that very clear. If your parents have turned away from uh, from me, then you have to follow me and not your parents or other family members. So I think, Ryan, that's kind of a long answer, not nearly as long as Dr. Boots would have been, um, of a clash, <laughs> a clash between a nationalist and an internationalist kind of um, political autonomy. And that's what we're dealing with here. Two particular uh, autonomous anti-Christian philosophies that seem on the surface to be at war with, another, with one another, nationalism and internationalism, which is Marxism, yet at root, mm-hmm. they're, um, they're committed to autonomy and are, uh, neither is willing to submit to the authority of God and his word. Right. Well, I uh, appreciate that, uh, that drive-by synopsis. Uh, you've, ac- you've preempted a couple of, uh, couple of my other questions, uh, so maybe and I'll, op- I'll open it up to both of you to, uh, to just drill down a little further uh, Andrew, you mentioned um, that uh, the the recent rise in nationalist sentiments of, of all stripes in that uh, I guess you know, a, v- a vague sense on on people's part that uh, we've been we've been pushed too far by the cultural Marxists. Uh, cultural Marxism uh, has been successful and prominent over the past half century, and there's a it's are are you are you saying that that kind of ideology has has hit a wall or has has exhausted its uh, its cultural capital or what uh, i guess s- yeah. say more more about uh this this recent rise in uh in a more nationalist sentiment yes no no i think uh, i i do think it's hit a wall but i don't think that it's spent all of its cultural capital and i think this will be one of the central battles that we'll be facing for for quite a while. Um, the uh, late uh, conservative and Christian Angelo Cotavilla wrote an interesting book on that, this called The Ruling Class, and he juxtaposed it with the country class. By country, he doesn't mean rural. He means people that are not a part of the elite. Well, Western elitism is essentially 
uh, either culturally Marxist or heavily influenced by cultural Marxism. Uh, and these elites, by that I mean cultural elites, uh, not necessarily financial. There are plenty of rich, uh, wealthy, conservative people. I mean people that are leading in, uh, in Hollywood, uh, the major media, the major foundations, the universities, these cultural fulcrums uh, whose influence are, is greatly disproportionate to its size. Those are almost completely committed to leftism, cultural Marxism. Well, the, what's called the country class, um, those of us, whether well-educated or not, that stand outside that, uh, recognize the, what's happened. They basically care nothing about the United States. As somebody wisely said, these cultural elites in, let's say, New York City have more in common with cultural elites in London and in Paris than they do with their own countrymen. And of course, uh, a lot of us that are not among those cultural elites uh, recognize that, and we see the dangers. I mean, the the um, we go all the way back, of course, to Roe v. Wade. Thank the Lord, recently overturned, but especially the the success of the sexual revolution, just just bulldozing borders everywhere. It must be the sexual revolution way. <clears throat> and there's been a, a strong pushback. Now, that among biblical Christians, that pushback is welcome. And we're not talking mainly about that today, though we can if we have time. We're talking about the nationalistic pushback, which is basically we get we're you know we're tired of the elites telling us what to do. So basically, we're going to embrace a blood and soil nationalism. That is the people closest to us who look like us, of the same race, of the same kinship. Um, and we're going in this almost almost always the case, Ryan. And this is especially troubling from the standpoint of a Christian worldview. We need a strong state and a strong political leader to enforce our nationalistic sentiments in order to protect us from all this cultural Marxism. Well, the intent is good, but uh, as Lord Acton said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. There's nothing Christian about a strong centralized state. Uh, so we do have the pushback. The distinctively Christian worldviewish pushback, which, by the way, has been going on from Ezra and CCL and other such organizations um, much longer than there's been the pushback from from populists, uh, nationalists, mm. I should say, that is a legitimate pushback. But most of the pushback uh, in the you know recent nationalist fervor is essentially uh, essentially secular. And I might want to I might say that uh, secular conservatism is no less dangerous in the end than secular liberalism or leftism or progressivism. Uh, so the pushback will continue. Uh, part of that pushback is what helped elect Donald Trump in the U.S. It, part of it was behind Brexit. That was good, by the way. I'm a strong Brexit supporter. Um, but that doesn't mean that um, the nationalism, this nationalist fervor in the United States, I'm speaking generically, not specifically of Christian nationalism, this nationalist slash populist fervor is somehow an improvement on cultural Marxism. It's not. Uh, they're both dangerous. Right. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. Joe, do you have anything to add just to, by way of supplement to, uh, to Andrew's remarks? Well, not much, really. I mean, it's very uh, comprehensive the way he summarized the uh, the issues there, and and um, I agree with the the analysis. I think sometimes uh, some on the nationalistic side of the discussion um, are nonplussed by our criticism um, of this the uh, the particular brand of of nationalism that we're seeing. 
Um, and it's precisely because, I think, of a lack of insight into what Andrew pointed out uh, when he talked about the reformational uh, recognition that um, history and uh, political thought swing tends to swing between these polarizing perspectives. You could probably summarize it in the ideas of how do you find unity in the midst of diversity? Uh, as well as the question, of course, the philosophical problem of constancy and change, unity and diversity. Um, and unless you have a, a, a philosophy, a Christian philosophy rooted in a biblical worldview to handle those questions, the place you inevitably end up is either basically baptizing Karl Marx uh, as a Christian and going along with a sort of Marxian uh, globalism, um, or you baptize Hegel and Romanticism um, and move in the direction of, um, of, of nationalism. So what we're not critiquing is the idea of a Christian state, right. uh, let alone the idea of Christian nationhood, and certainly not the idea of an American identity or, or a British identity or a French identity. Um, but what we're talking about is from the Christian standpoint, um, I think Andrew sort of referenced in passing the whole idea of peoples and nations. We're told in the book of Revelation that the kingdom people are from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who've been made a kingdom of priests unto God. Well, of course, that presupposes the existence of peoples and nations. The problem is when the totalizing conception, the organizing principle for human existence becomes an ism mm -hmm. like nationalism, um, or Marxism rather than the kingdom of God. Marx emphasizes the whole idea of unity, but in a secular sense. Um, and um, nationalism emphasizes a primordial diversity, uh, but ultimately there also in a secular sense and denies that the kingdom of God relativizes, as Andrew rightly pointed out, the family, the church, and the state in terms of the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we cannot devote loyalty to the, na to the nation uh, above that of the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom any more than we can be loyal to the family uh, that has turned against Christ and the living God, or that we can be loyal to an apostate church over and against Christ and his kingdom. So it's the absolutizing of the idea of the nation here that is the problem. That's where our critique stems. It's a failure to find unity in diversity among, the, uh, among peoples and nations within Christ and, where, uh, and the gospel of the kingdom so that the nation now becomes the organizing principle. And it's interesting that both of these polar uh, opposite or supposed um, uh, opposites actually, as Andrew says, have oftentimes an underlying uh, unity. And one of those is that Marxism in its dream of a stateless world tends to emphasize the state more and more. Um, and the, and the, the nationalist in the dream of, um, of, of unity around national identity ends up emphasizing the state more and more. And both end up with um, essentially totalizing or totalitarian visions of statism and the concept of sphere sovereignty um, and the limitation of family, church, state, and other institutions just begins to vanish into, into thin air. Right. So 
I think the the philosophical route here is absolutely critical to to the discussion, whether it's rooted in scripture or whether we're actually importing non-Christian philosophy into our into our thinking. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Uh, so at uh, with, with the Ezra Institute, we we've uh, made it one of our goals for several years to uh, to help Christians cultivate a bit of an allergy uh, to any kind of ism, as you as you pointed out. Uh, where in, I guess my my question is in there now that uh, now that we've firmly established that uh, is there. Is there nuance, uh, or are there are there shades or, or degrees of uh, I get of isms where you can have and let's let's just walk back nationalism a little bit and call it something like patriotism. Uh, can you have a an ism like patriotism that is that is good uh, while it's not uh, absolutized? Yes, I think you can have um, a healthy appreciation for where God has placed you historically, and uh, he's placed us historically in particular nations. Um, I think that is true of, um, I mean, just about any nation, the Polish nation. I think, though, the history of Russia politically has been tragic for centuries. There's nothing wrong with Russians being patriotic as far as their history, I mean, uh, they have been mm. influenced greatly by Russian Orthodoxy, which I, my view is a very deviant segment of the faith. But nonetheless, there is a little contact, vague contact with the Christian faith there. Uh, so I don't think that's the problem. But most of these isms actually are, are ideologies. I think the problem with, with the nationalism in the expression Christian nationalism is mm-hmm. that it's the term is so elastic as to have almost no meaning. Yeah. Now, yeah. if you read um, Stephen Wolf's book, uh, I think you'll find out that he essentially begins by making a case for nationalism and then saying, well, given that we must have nationalism, we need the Christian version. Uh, that, mm. in my view, is precisely the wrong direction. This is why I appreciate reformational thought so much. It's uh, basically radical in the specific denotative sense of getting to the root. We must get to the root of the issue what does God's revelation say? Constantly, we must be looking back at God's revelation and not sort of baptizing things out in the culture. So I have come up with a sort of a three-pronged moniker that might help describe it. There are all sorts of subgroups, but we have today Christian nationalism, Christian pietism, and Christian culture. Um, Christian nationalism, which we'll talk about perhaps more in a specific way in a minute, is at least in its more academic versions and the more prominent spokesmen for it uh, hold basically a baptized nationalism, a Christianized version of nationalism. And some of them will acknowledge that. Uh, Again, acknowledging Ryan variations. And then, of course, Mm -hmm. in response to that, you have some groups like uh, G3 and various others, not everybody in them again, but some of these groups that push back rightly but their pushback is not to say that Christ should be Lord of all things, but to say, we don't believe that the state or politics should be Christian. Well, that's also a false and mistaken view. That's the pietistic view. The third view uh, is the right view, uh, right? The Goldilocks view, not too big, not too small, but just right. And it just naturally is the Ezra and CCL view, right? Our view must be right. Of course, we believe it is. And that is the Christian culture view, which is that all of life should be Christianized but not in any nationalistic way, 
And uh, obviously it can't be pietistic, but rather every area of life must be brought under the authority of Christ the King according to his word. And where it uh, pertains to the state and politics, then we ask ourselves, what does a Christian state look like? And in our view, the, the role of the Christian state is is very minimal, certainly compared to the options we have today, is to enforce the law of God appropriate to that sphere. The role of the state is not to make people better Christians or even Christians at all. That's the job of the family and church. It is to maintain Christian standards appropriate to the state, but that's very different from saying, well, the, the role of the civil magistrate is to Christianize things or, or, make the, or make society safe only for Christians. The Bible doesn't say the magistrate should make society safe only for Christians. In fact, that's an anti-biblical idea. Uh, in ancient Israel, there was an idea of the rule of law everywhere, that you couldn't discriminate against anyone within the bounds of God's moral law. The strangers, there's no, not one law for one kind of person, one law for another. Everyone must be treated equally under the law, God's law, of course. That's very different from a nationalistic idea such that we have a Christian prince whose idea is basically sort of to enforce Christianity. A Christian state, ironically, is a much smaller state than a Christian nationalist state because it has a big view of the family and the church and, of course, the individual. I think Rashtuni said it best when he talked about the biblical view of governments. Whenever you hear the term government today, you think about Washington, D.C. or Toronto or London, but in the Bible, basically, there's, uh, there is, uh, the most important government is self-government under God's authority, and family government has its own governing structure. This, by the way, is a form of sure sovereignty. Church government, business government, there's also government in art, education, and all these others. And then you have civil government, which is one government among all. Well, the fact that uh, Christian nationalists really stress civil government, and if you read the writings, they do. The important thing is we must capture politics. The problem is the leftists have captured politics, and we must have our own version of crushing these people. Well, that's not the biblical view of, of government at all. Uh, the, the civil government, the state, has a very, very limited role. And uh, I would suggest that's a good thing. And it's frightening when the state becomes very, very big and has a, co a largely coercive role in society. We saw it during the COVID lockdowns. You want a big state? That's what a big state looks like. You mm -hmm. say, oh, no, but if, we, but if we got control of the state, we would do it differently. We would do it. No, I'm afraid that's not correct. I would remind you what uh, God said to, uh, through, um, to Israel through Samuel when they wanted a king. He warned them. He warned them. He, there are constant warnings in the word of God against centralized political authority. There should be one king, one godly king only. I'm not arguing against British monarchy, Joe. One true godly king, and that is King Jesus, who's the cosmic ruler. So we need to deconsolidate political power, and uh, we, our families and churches and other institutions should be strong. Uh, that's sort of a beginning of an answer, but I think that can get us moving. Right. Mm -hmm. Just to... Uh... I guess follow up or, or press on that a little bit. You you've mentioned we've mentioned Christian nationalism a couple of times in passing, uh, and you you said and I agree, Andrew, that the term it's a it's a fairly it's a fairly recently just in the past few years kind of uh, become a a household term amongst uh, a lot of reform minded Western Christians, uh, and as quickly kind of. Uh, become a uh, you know a political and ideological football to fight over uh, <clears throat> I guess the que the question I is uh, 
Has there ever in history been a a God honoring form of what uh, what we might call we could reasonably call Christian nationalism? Have we have we seen this applied in history in a way that uh, that honors God and leads to the flourishing of the people under that uh, that system? Well, I think that's where the equivocation um, comes in, Ryan. We certainly have seen substantial Christian nations from time to time, but I wouldn't want mm-hmm. to equate that with Christian nationalism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, uh, look, I think an example of that, and I'll tell you honestly, and I don't say it because Joe is here, I have nothing but the highest regard for the history of Christian England. And, uh, and that's despite the fact that I am not generally in favor of a monarchy as an American, but I don't deny how that uh, England influenced the world and not just its own culture for Christianity. But I think, I think no one, no knowledgeable uh, historian or scholar of British history would call that a sort of Christian nationalism, certainly not in the way that's being advocated today. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a group of people that uh, believed in, if anybody, I mean, where did the idea of trade, international trade, come from in the modern world? Well, of course, Holland, but particularly England. I mean, England helped helped make the world wealthy because here's this little island that's trading all over the place. And it's just a truly remarkable based on not perfect. No nation is perfect, but based largely on Christian principles, going back in freedom, the Magna Carta and so on. Um, so uh, that and of course, and this is certainly true in, um, in Europe, uh, I think that it is correct to say that even in Eastern Europe, when you had uh, an Eastern Orthodoxy, and I'm a strong opponent of the statism there, and yet uh, I do, I'm glad that there were magistrates that bowed the knee to King Jesus, even if they were, uh, their political authority was concentrated. So in general, the answer is yes, there have been Christian nations. Uh, but the idea of tying Christianity to blood and soil ethnicity and uh, the uh, idea that it's um, among Christian nationalism today that uh, we should basically kick the Bible out of the uh, out of civil authority and we should operate according to natural law, so-called. No, I'm afraid that sort of Christian nationalism uh, is not favorable. So, if you want to say, have there been Christian nations? Yes. Has there been sound Christian nationalism such as being advocated today? I would suggest no. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. All right. Um, one of the uh, one of the things as well that uh, that we've talked in and around that I'd like to uh, get to from both of you a little bit little bit more commentary on here is this association between or this connection with nationalism and anti-Semitism, and that uh, that has seemed to be a recurring factor throughout history, at least the history of the uh, 19th and 20th century, certainly. Uh, But even uh, some modern variations of this Christian nationalism are not immune to to a form of anti-Semitism. And can can you just discuss or explain uh, whether that is so or whether that's just perception uh, and if it's if it's true, uh, what what accounts for it? Sadly, it is uh, it is true. Uh, when you look at the great nationalisms of the twentieth century, um, none was Christian, of course, but mm. all of them, to one degree or another, were anti-Semitic. I mean, immediately we think of National Socialism and 
uh, Nazi Germany, but it was almost equally true in Mussolini's Italy and uh, Franco Spain, perhaps somewhat less true in the nationalism in Japan with the Hirohito, but still there was a just general hostility. I must be fair too. There was also even an American democracy. Too many Americans were anti-Semitic, and I suspect also in the Britain and on the, con- the continent. But as far as nationalism is concerned, at least in the 20th century, it seemed almost inherently anti-Semitic. To be a nationalist was to be an anti-Semite. Hmm. Uh, I have seen marks uh, distincting, uh, sad and tragic marks of this in um, sort of the modern Christian new right and uh, those who hold a Christian nationalism. I was just watching a YouTube clip of a, a video. is rather harrowing, frightening, if you ask me. One of the uh, Christian nationalist authors, he's even co-authored a book on Christian nationalism. Um, this is not Stephen Wolf, by the way. This is someone else who came across quite <laughs> vocally uh, supporting um, anti-Semitism, uh, advocating the idea that uh, when he was asked, how do you account for the fact that the Jews have historically tended to be very exceptional as uh, merchants, as brain surgeons, as scholars, and so on, despite their small size? Why have they been so mm. uh, predominant um, despite their small size? And his answer was, well, you see some sort of evil satanic influence there. So he was basically arguing Satan has used them as though they are somehow uniquely evil people. Um, he made the comment, he said, uh, I think that as uh, generations, as we get farther away historically from uh, the 1930s and 40s and the, and the uh, Holocaust uh, in Europe, uh, more and more people are going to be willing to accept the idea that there is something uniquely evil about the Jews. And we have to be willing to discuss this because a lot of younger Reformed people are very interested in this topic on the uh, on this, these sort of uh, odd, unique place of the Jews uh, as anti-Christian and so on. Well, um, I would like to say that uh, there are two basic groups historically in Christianity that have been most pro-Jewish. One is a distorted view of dispensationalists who have an inflated view. I don't get into that right now. But the second is the Reformed Christians. Uh, The Reformed wing of the Reformation has always, almost always been strongly pro-Jewish because it sees the promises of God in Romans chapter Hmm. 11, that a great number of Jews will be converted in the future. And as Joe uh, Boot was referring to earlier, and he'll probably want to talk about this, the Jews themselves, despite the, in their apostasy, they're a reminder of God's covenant promises, a reminder of the word of God. Their very presence is a rebuke to uh, a modern uh, secularism. Uh, I think it's vital to remember that. By the way, this has nothing whatsoever, and this is where the dispensationalists go wrong, with promises to the modern Jewish state, as though there's something sacrosanct, as though we always have to support that. Uh, the, there's the, the modern. There's no. There's no prophetic role in the Bible for the modern Jewish state. There is a prophetic role for, for a large number of specific ethnic Jews, which is a separate issue, altogether. So, mm-hmm. um, no biblical Christian can be anti-Semitic, and the rise of anti-Semitism not o- not only ironically both on the progressive left. It's astounding that in the United States. It's astounding that in Britain. There are so many anti-Semitic, uh, with uh, hundreds and sometimes thousands of protesters in the streets. Uh, we had a number of members of the, I just read this yesterday, uh, several hundred members, uh, younger members in their 20s and 30s, and the Biden administration sent Joe Biden a letter saying that uh, he is being too tolerant of the Jews. He should be uh, much more supportive of uh, the Palestinians and, by implication, Hamas. This was, by the way, almost all 20- and 30-year-olds. Uh, 
there's a great mm. demographic difference here. Uh, so this anti-Semitism, um, we're not tilting at windmills. This is a big problem. It is a problem in some segments, some segments of Christian nationalism, and it's flatly contra-biblical. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Joe, that was uh, that was an interesting uh, line that you started down earlier. Can you uh, flesh that out about uh, the Jews as a reminder of God's covenant promises? Yes, well... Paul is very clear about that, isn't he, in uh, in Ephesians two, um, and uh, in in and actually elsewhere in the New Testament, where we're reminded that um, they uh, the Jews uh, were the vehicle of the covenants of promise, um, and um, we were uh, we've been grafted in, and, and Andrew has um, referred to Romans eleven. Uh, which is a vital, critical passage where there is also, you know, in Romans, a caution that um, we don't boast saying, well, you know, somebody was broken off that we could be grafted in um, because uh, we could be broken off also um, if uh, if we rebel um, and, and disobey. Because, of course, the I think the the issue is that Christ is the root. Uh, he is the he is what we're grafted into. I think the dispensationalists make the error that somehow the the Jews themselves are the root, but no, that the, the uh, Christ is the root. Yes. Um, and um, and so this is precisely why it's important that um, uh, biblical faith doesn't begin with Abraham. Um, uh, it begins, of course, with Adam, and then with Noah and his sons. And Abraham pays a tithe to the priest king um, of Salem. Um, and the and the priesthood, the ultimate priesthood, is the order of Melchizedek, not of Aaron. Um, but nonetheless, the the uh, Abraham is called out, and uh, he's not promised an empire, and certainly not a Marxist one, um, because the promise is Christ, as Paul tells us in Galatians. He is the seed of Abraham, um, the seed. Um, but those in, uh, uh, in, of Abraham's loins, not, by the way, all eight, because Abraham had eight sons, but only one was the yes. child of promise, which is, of course, uh, the, the, it's, not a, it's not an ethnic seed. Yes. Uh, it's not about simply being derived from a particular ethnic personage. Um, it's the promise. It's the covenants of promise. And so through Isaac um, and Jacob, and then on into the, his sons and the 12 tribes, we have the custodians of the covenants of promise. And so that makes the, the existence of the Jews a perpetual reminder, historical reminder. And as Andrew alluded to, with secularism and modernism's kind of denial of the Bible, denial of the historicity of Scripture, uh, denial of Christ and his identity and his messianic identity and so on. Christ being the anointed one, the Christ. You can't understand the identity of Christ, the anointed one, unless you understand the history of the Jews. And, uh, the, um, and of course, the way in which Gentiles within their history, like Rahab and, um, uh, and Ruth, um, become part of that lineage of Christ, the anointed one, um, who is the, the priest king after the order of Melchizedek. But you can't understand the anointed one, the idea of Christ, without the Jews. So the existence of the Jew, the presence of the Jew historically, which is why, despite the diaspora, that that reminder remains of the truth of the Bible and that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world for Jew and Gentile. 
um, and that um, we can expect and should expect a great ingathering, as Paul longs for in Romans 11, of Jews, of, of people who can trace their ethnicity um, to the Jewish people, that we can expect an ingathering. That's precisely why in, um, this, in I think, around 1650, Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell in England, readmitted the Jews to England because, as Andrew says, the Reformed faith had always a, was always very philo-Semitic. It was Hebraic to its core, and it's the importance of the Word of God, not, interestingly, pagan Stoic philosophy, which tends to be the philosophical ground of um, nationalism, but the Bible uh, was central to uh, Reformed thinking and the Puritans. Um, and so as they thought eschatologically, um, the Jews would re- were readmitted to, to England. So there is something um, significant, and I would say on both sides of the coin that Andrew alluded to, it's remarkable how Marxism has become incredibly anti-Semitic as well. And it yeah. tells you mm-hmm. when you find mm-hmm. anti-Semitism, you're looking at a culture that's overthrown Christianity. I think that's key. When when de-Christianization begins to happen, whether it's in the form of fascism, uh, national socialism, or Marxism, uh, you see anti-Semitism begin to rise. And um, the coalition of, of Marxism and Islamic anti-Semitism is very interesting today. That's not a great surprise. Marx himself, ironically, and there are such things as anti-Semitic Jews, by the way, right. uh, because they are, they, they're resentful or, or have a hatred towards their own nation's heritage in the word of God. Um, Karl Marx himself is a very good example of an anti-Semitic Jew. Um, I would say that Sigmund Freud is another ended his life. I think his last book was a book spitting out venom against Moses and the word of God. Um, so anti-Semitism isn't just a Gentile phenomena. Um, it's there amongst um, uh, atheistic Jews as well. And uh, where you see de-Christianization, you see the rise of anti-Semitism. Now, England, the, the heritage which Andrew referred to, um, as a sort of an idea of Christian nationhood, really borrowed its idea of kingship from the Bible, mm-hmm. and um, what it uh, what, what, what the the one preeminent requirement of a king in Scripture, if you recall, was that the king would uh, make would read not just read the law of God every day, but make a copy of it in his own hand, Amen. and then read God's law every day, so that he is not lifted up. above his brothers. So it's interesting that when the Puritans and the Reformed faith really impacted England, one of the first effects was to limit the king. Um, And uh, although the coronation oath makes it very clear that the king is subject to Christ and his law and his word, absolute power of monarchy and some of those ideas that had come through a synthesis with paganism and Christianity had to, had to be broken. And one of the, um, if there are any advantages to the English system, um, Andrew, one of the interesting things is that um, what kingship um, uh, uh, has allowed, a limited kingship under God as the head of state, allows you to maintain a patriotic attitude uh, to your nation, um, despite what may be going on in political life. Uh, Because governments, civil governments come and go, 
Um, and I think one of the challenges um, in other uh, constitutional arrangements is that it's often very difficult for people to feel loyalty, um, to feel a sense of unity, to feel a sense of patriotism if somebody is in government who seems very opposed to their perspectives. Um, in the constitutional arrangements in Britain, um, one of the things for some time that it really managed to preserve was that you can be loyal to king and country um, under God, even if you're opposed to the political authority that may be in power at that time, because the head of the state is not actually the prime minister, um, but is the king who uh, is supposed to represent um, uh, allegiance to allegiance to God. Um, it's interesting, too, that um, some of the um, uh, more nationalistic proposals um, have come from um, Jews like Yoram Hazoni, um, mm. and I think his book, The Virtue of Nationalism, um, is uh, a much softer uh, and uh, more Hebraic expression of the idea of nationhood. I would, in fact, describe his book as much more a description of the idea of biblical nationhood than of nationalism. And it's interesting that you get more reference to the Bible and more attempted at exegesis of scripture in that book than you, do in get, than you do from some of the books that claim to be Christian nationalism, hmm. um, uh, but are, in fact, really reliant on pagan um, resources and resourcement uh, uh, philosophically. Um, and uh, interesting that on the one hand, you don't get anti-Semitism. You've got Yoram Hazoni, a Jew, writing it. Um, on some of the, in some of these others, you get overtones of primordial forms, ethnic forms of nationalism, which in some cases, not all, as Andrew said, uh, leads to sympathies with um, anti-Semitism. I'd like to add another point. Thank you, Joe. Um, it's interesting. Uh, critics of Christianity have correctly pointed out that there has been anti-Semitism within uh, prominent leaders of the Christian church historically. And uh, that just shows that the Christian church, too, can be sinful. The Bible teaches that. Yes. Uh, interesting what happened, uh, basically, as uh, certain individuals in church history became, and some quite early in the patristic church, became anti-Semitic, they tended to cut off the authority of the Old Testament or diminish the authority of the Old Testament because they considered it so Jewish. It's very interesting what happened historically. The Old Testament basically structures the biblical and Christian worldview, and it structures yes. the interpretation of the Bible. So if you get rid of that, you seem, you get, it's necessary to replace it with some other sort of interpretive structure. Well, in the patristic church, that happened to be scholasticism. So basically, you either have a Hebrew way of interpreting the Bible, which is the Bible itself is a Hebrew book, or you have a replacement, which is the scholastic way of interpreting the Bible. And that what I've just described are two options, only one of which is correct, and that is the Hebrew way. The Bible is a Hebrew book, and it's for this reason, and I think the listeners, I hope they can understand this. This is a really important point to make. Christians must be anti-Judaistic, that is, against the apostate Judaism of both the Old and New Testaments, but pro-Hebraic. Mm -hmm anti-Judaistic, but pro-Hebraic, because the Church of Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile, is, of course, the true Israel. The Bible itself is a Jewish book. Our whole faith is structured in a Jewish way. This Jew-Gentile faith, this truly global Christian faith, is structured in a Jewish way. And therefore, it must oppose uh, 
the Judaic, the anti, the, the Judaistic way of interpreting the scripture, which is salvation by works, salvation by ethnicity, and so on, mm-hmm. that Jesus Christ uh, strongly opposed. Understanding those factors is vital. By the way, this is another reason that scholasticism, and uh, we won't go into it in detail, I'm sure, but is so dangerous. Scholasticism is largely, uh, with respect to the Bible, an interpretive method replacing the authority of the Old Testament. It's a Hellenic Greek way rather than a Hebraic way. I think that's important Mm. to understand. Yeah, excellent point. Excellent point. That's that's a great, uh, great reminder. This has been a... This it is a, a a difficult and complicated and emotionally intense uh, subject, and I, I really appreciate the way that uh, that both of you have treated it today. We'll uh, we'll leave our discussion there. There's obviously much more that could be said, but uh, we'll we'll let that uh, sort of sit in its own capsule for this uh, this week's discussion. And I remind you, as ever, thank you for listening. This has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation. And we'll tell you that uh, from him and through him and to him, Jesus Christ the King are all things. May God be glorified, and we'll look forward to being with you again next week.